mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hello and welcome to A Very Christmassy Sentimental Garbage, the podcast where we talk about the culture we love that society sometimes makes us feel ashamed of. My name is Caroline and baby fish mouth is the new phrase sweeping the nation. Joining me is thinly disguised novel about her husband's infidelities, <laughs> Ella Risbridger. Hi, nice to be back. Welcome back after your long absence. My long absence from the pod, my spiritual home. So a new newcomers to the podcast uh, probably won't have discovered this yet, but every year we do a Christmas special. And um, it's a difficult explaining the concept of what the Christmas special is. Basically, we take a very broad church kind of topic, something that we can kind of flit in and out of that seem, that's kind of cozy. And the idea is, is that like, if you have a lot of time over Christmas and you, you're kind of vaguely enjoying a lot of culture, that's kind of the same thing. Is that, am I explaining it right? Do you think? <laughs> I don't know. I think that my definition of the Christmas special is we talk about a thing we like. And this used to be different back when it was just books on sentimental the difference yeah. with the Christmas special was we'll talk about lots of books. We'll talk about a collection of things. Yes. But now I think it's just Ella and Caroline. Ella and Caroline chat. Chatting. Yes, chatting hour. So the first year we did the Midford Sisters. The second year we did children's books. And now we're doing Nora Ephron. Why did we decide on Nora Ephron? I think because we've not done it yet. And it feels mm-hmm. weird that we've not talked about Heartburn. It feels weird that we've not... Now you're doing movies that we've not talked about When Harry Met Sally or the film I always want to call The Little Shop Around the Corner, but it's really called You've Got Mail. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why. I've never seen the play. I've never read the book. I don't know why I'm so addicted to calling it The Little Shop Around the Corner rather yes, than just it, the it, name of the movie. <laughs> it's weird because it was a like a 1930s movie with uh, Jimmy Stewart. The shop, it was called The Shop Around the Corner. And then it was remade by Nora Ephron. Uh, not remade so much as referenced heavily um, and called You've Got Mail. So really, you're being quite a cinephile when you call it Shop Around the Corner. <laughs> Which is uh, unlikely because as everyone knows, I hate films. <laughs> <laughs> you hate films, except these ones. <laughs> hey, and some of these, as will become clear in this over the course of this podcast, there are plenty of Nora Ephron things I hate. And I think that's probably what I am bringing to this table, is a sort of, not quite cynicism, that suggests I don't love her. But I feel with Nora, Nora, my friend, as if she is my friend, but my complex friend. I don't love everything that- she does. I don't know if she always makes good choices, but I'm I'm here for it. I'm along for the Nora ride. This is... So well put, because there's a reason that I haven't done Nora yet uh, in any detail. Like I've done Julie and Julia. That is the extent of which I have touched on her on this podcast. And the reason I did Julie and Julia because is because I'm only really interested on sentimental garbage 
with things that have a little bit of stink on it. Like the stink of commercial or critical failure is very interesting to me. And finding things to love amid that failure is interesting to me. But with the bulk of Nora Ephron's career, with Heartburn, with When Harry Met Sally, with Sleepless in Seattle, they tend to be that thing where everyone loves it. Everyone admits it's great. Everyone thinks she's a genius. And for me, that's not interesting, not vis-a-vis this podcast anyway. I love those movies. I think she was um, a really, really intelligent and talented writer and filmmaker. But I've noticed that men who don't tend to read women will tell you they love Zadie Smith and that gets them out of misogyny jail. And men who say (laughs) they don't love rom-coms, they'll say they love When Harry Met Sally. And I always tend to build a kind of a weird resentment towards female artists who men use to get out of misogyny jail. Well, I think it's it's special girl, isn't it? It's being like, oh, you're not like the other girls. The worst thing a man can say because it's so tempting to believe. Which is because it speaks so strongly to your sort of sense of internal misogyny of like, you're not like the other girls. And you're like, yeah, because the other girls are rubbish and like girl things. It's like when you're, I'm really betraying a lot here, but I know that this applies to you too. It's like when you're 16 or 17 and an older man tells you that you're really mature for your age. Oh, (laughs) full body shudder. Oh, wow. Pleasure and pain. (laughs) Oh, wow. You're only 17. That's amazing. You're so, your mind... Your mind's so, you've got an old soul. The Best Supporting Actor Award every year should go to a 28-year-old man who's pretending to be shocked that someone's only 17. That is the darkest joke. <laughs> oh, wow, I think really? the listeners can handle it. <laughs> well, I know. I expect that most of the listeners also, also had this know happen. Know what we mean. That's yes, just that exactly, feeling. Yeah. And that, I think, is why... Once you start realising that that's a scam, the, oh, wow, you're only 17, you must have an old soul. And also the, you're not like the other girls thing. Once mm-hmm. you realise that's a scam, you kind of become suspicious of people who get the not like the other girls treatment. I think that's also a kind of form of misogyny where you're just like, ugh, why do the boys like you? <laughs> it's so weird. It's like, it's like misogyny is this, food that you never stop digesting <laughs> do you know what I mean it's like you you realize the scam of not like other girls and then you turn against the not like other girls girls <laughs> oh my god it's a never-ending cycle it's like the water cycle of patriarchy it really is it rains it takes up moisture from the oceans and rains down into the earth and we're like oh great <laughs> here we are again thriving in the patriarchy yeah and every time you think you've made a breakthrough on it you end up doing some completely internalized misogynistic thing that erases your own epiphany it's so exhausting (laughs) but is that what we're doing is that what we're doing i mean i think we're going to properly get into it and the episodes of the podcast i that we've done that i hate most are the ones where you and i spend the whole time saying when we really get into this we'll start talking and then the episode ends Um, yeah so i want to be careful that we don't do that but so true. <laughs> we'll really get into this later. But for now, let's chat. Um, mm-hmm. Are we doing that with Nora Ephron? Are we jealous of Nora's great success? Are we jealous because she's a national treasure? Are we jealous because she's too funny? Or is there something to dislike about her? I I realise that I'm in saying, do we dislike national treasure and everyone's favourite Nora Ephron? I may be stepping into, I was going to say thorny ground, but what I sort of mean is like, thin ice 
I don't, and I, I want to be really clear at the start of this. I don't have an answer to whether I don't like Nora Ephron. I love Nora Ephron. That, that I feel really strongly about. I love her, but also, do I like her? <laughs> oh my God, this is, oh, we're in fertile territory here. I think, okay, I have so much to say on this. Because I think since Nora's death, which I think was in 2012, um, her fame has really snowballed. Like, it's become, like, she's become so ubiquitous in a way that I don't think she was when she was alive. Like, the Virago modern classics. Like, I've started to see t-shirts with just her name on them. There was a documentary that came out a few years ago that was made by her sons that was, like, on HBO. She was then, like, fictionalized in that terrible TV show, Good Girls Revolt. And it, you know, she is, she would be in her 80s now. I think that's what we forget about her because we see her as being this eternal 50-year-old, really. Um, But she, you know, she was born in 1942. And I think there's something uncomfortable in the realization that because she was this quite prickly person, and we'll get into that, I'm I'm doing the thing, and we'll get into that. Um, But there's this thing of like, women are only suitable to be praised after they're dead because she was someone who her, a lot of her work wasn't really praised when she was alive like like people really savaged you've got mail like all of her successes were really couched in oh well you know of course her first novel was a bestseller it was about her famous husband of course those movies did well it was because she was best friends with Mike Nichols who directed them you know I think there was always a couching of her success when she's alive but since she's dead, since she died, her fame snowballed into something godlike that is very unrelatable. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And I think I think godlike isn't the term I'd go for. It's more like she's kind of a signifier of who people want to be. Liking a Nora Ephron film, liking Nora Ephron is kind of a cultural marker for a certain kind of woman. Like person, men do do it as well. But broadly speaking, being a woman who's into Nora Ephron is like, yes. it's almost, it's just on the border of being a kitsch. It's kind of a slight thing you can hang a personality on, which I yes. think is true with actually quite a lot of the things you talk about on Sentimental Garbage. What they are is external markers of something you feel internally and privately, like, oh, that's what I, that's who I am. I'm a person who likes this. And I think when you get into something very niche then it become then then that's the whole thing but i think i've kind of lost the thread of my thought a little bit here but my point is liking nora efron is a kind of marker for the person you are and the kind of life you're living does that make sense yes yes no i i absolutely understand what you mean um and what is that personality? I think it's 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 generally the young urban woman, right? Like I think you can is, here's the here's the differentiation. Lots of people like when Harry met Sally, and lots of people like Sleepless in Seattle. But there's a certain kind of person who describes them as Nora Ephron films rather than Meg Ryan films. That's or rather exactly than rom-coms. it. Exactly. You know what I mean? the, exactly the kind of not fetishization. That's too strong a word. And I will say that I love a lot of Nora Ephron films, and Heartburn, which I'd really like to talk about properly in a bit. Oh, there we go again. Um, Heartburn (laughs) is one of those kind of foundational texts that is very important to the way I think about writing 
not entirely uncomplicatedly, but it's really important to the way I think about writing about food and memoir. So being a person who really has a lot of feelings about Nora Ephron, I mean this quite quite affectionately. That kind of person is the person like me. It's a young urban woman with too many feelings who would like to be as concise and crisp as she is. Yes, that is such an exquisite point because it's this thing of like, um, so much of loving her is about the tone and the stridentness and the thing, the way... I think a big feature of her writing in both her essays and in Heartburn, which I think was her, was her only novel, um, it's this thing of these characters always speak in these very crisp, decisive ways that is really seductive. This thing of like, it'll be like some random sentence, like, well, everybody in New York knows where to get the best coleslaw and it's the deli of such and such. And you're like, yes, <laughs> I don't get I don't know or care if that's true. Um, there's, this, there's this essay that I read by her friend Richard Cohen that I'm going to read a little bit of here because I think it really encapsulates exactly what we just talked about. Marlon Brando's gay. Everybody knows that. Nora said that one night in my house in Washington. I can't remember how Brando's name come up, came up, but there it was. This startling, at the time, piece of information, so inside, so unknown to the general public, who considered him fools that they were, a womanizer of great repute. I can remember exactly where I was at that time, in the living room, standing in front of the sofa and to the right. The remark hit with the force of a dumb, dumb bullet. Marlon Brando's gay? Who knew? Everybody, it turned out. Everybody knew. And whether they did or they didn't, whether it was true or not, was totally besides the point. When Nora said one of these things, and she said them quite often, she did not do so with any sort of tentativeness, with hesitation, with the suggestion that this might be the rawest gossip and possibly wrong, but with a firmness and robust confidence that transformed the gossamer of hearsay into something chiseled into the frieze of a Greek temple. It was beyond dispute. Behold what she knew and behold what you didn't. You knew some things, but she knew everything. I mean, A, I love that. But B, I think that's really interesting because I was going to say, have you read? But I know that you've read Delia Efron, Nora's sister's book, uh, Mother, Sister, Mother, Dog, something like that. Yes, yes. Love it. And there's a real edge to that essay, to the one you've just read, that I also find in Delia's writing about Nora. Mm-hmm, Just this mm-hmm. sense of she was ex- incredibly dogmatic and she loved power. Yes. Which are two things that women don't really get to do as much as they might otherwise want to, to love power and to pronounce like that. Not to love kind of soft power, but to love firmly having power over people and using it. And I just think it's interesting. I think it's interesting that these people who loved her were very clear when writing after her death. One of the interesting and wonderful and difficult things about her was that she loved to pronounce and she loved to be the last word on a subject. And do you think that's part of the fantasy for people like you and me? I th- Oh my God. Yes. Yes, I do. I think that... Particularly now, I think we're all incredibly aware a lot of the time of the many, many ways that we are carrying around with us lots of different prejudices and it's kind of too strong a word, but like everybody's spiky, 
right? Everybody's spiky and everybody's mm. soft. And we're all very aware that if you say the wrong thing, if you're spiky in the wrong ways, you're going to hurt in someone else's soft place. I, yeah. not to sort of be this person, but to be this person. When I was writing my next book, which is a another food memoir, it's a cookbook about feelings. I Drop was, the title, go on, pre-order. <laughs> I'll do it at the end. It's called The Year of Miracles. But it's about when John died and... Uh, when I moved in with Tash and kind of falling in love with Rich and all this, all this stuff, which is very personal to me. But it's also about cooking in London, which if you cook in London and you live somewhere like we do in Lewisham, there are lots and lots of different food cultures all around you and you can't help but be influenced. And so there's kind of lots and lots of very thorny, difficult territory inherent in the idea of writing this food memoir about what I cook and about the people around me. And I was sort of paralysed for really 18 months. Every sentence had an apology in it. Every sentence was just, maybe this isn't right. I'm sorry. I don't know. Maybe I'm using this wrong. This isn't how other people will remember it. I've forgotten this. I don't know. And certainly one of the things I am envious of about Nora Ephron is her ability to be like, it was like this. Shut up. It is this. I I believe this. I believe that. It's funny, Delia Efron in that book we were just talking about talks about how their father would have got himself into trouble on Twitter a lot for making <laughs> the same random pronouncements for no reason. And I think I think one of the Nora Efron things is to make clear, stark pronouncements. Even if you disagree with them, you're still like, wow, she said it very confidently. So true. So good. And it's like, it's it's really well sort of, it's almost like self-satirizing in that scene in When Harry Met Sally, you know, when they're all on, the four of them are on that blind date together. And uh, the, the writer character, um, Bruno Kirby is played by, is like, some, what's his, what's his, I was like, um, I think restaurants are too important. Restaurant is to the 80s what theater was to the 70s. <laughs> and it's like, these are random pronouncements that like Carrie Fisher's character is so uh, hypnotized by, but like, you know, Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal's character are like, come on. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I think you're right. I think it is that kind of sending up of, I think also it was a style thing. Like, I think it was more fashionable in the past to make direct, clear pronouncements like that. I think because having a platform was rarer. Yeah, I think wow. if you have only a, a handful of people who have newspaper columns and magazine pieces, then making those kind of pronouncements maybe feels more like part of the job. Whereas I feel now that almost all writers are in conversation with their readers in a way that I personally find very satisfying and em emotionally and creatively important because you're all talking on the internet and there's this kind of, yeah. I hesitate to use the word democratising, but a certainly a, a smoothing, there's not the gulf between the writer yes. and the reader. I think being able to respond quickly has also killed off those kind of pronouncements or the ability to make those kind of pronouncements. And I think actually it's kind of, you know, it's a good thing in lots of ways that you can't now make a sweeping statement on the airwaves and expect no one to argue with you. But now if you said something in the bold way, the way she does, A, people could simply Google it and find out you were wrong. <laughs> yes, yes. And B, they could start telling you why you were wrong instantly. And there is so little fun in being instantly told you're wrong. 
Yes. There's no place for that kind of sweeping pronouncement in a world where we all have access to information. And I think that's it, isn't it? That's the key thing, is that what Delia and... I'm sorry, I've forgotten the name of the guy who wrote that article about Richard Cohen. What Delia and Richard Cohen both say about her is that her... The absolute thing she was a genius at is was working out who needed to know what information, hoarding information, keeping back information, letting some information slip, which is of course what makes a genius storyteller. Yes. Oh, you're. Oh my God! I hadn't even put those two things together, but you're right. The same sort of power hungry um, instinct to keep back pieces of information is exactly what makes a great storyteller because it's that thing of of any great anecdote of the thing and like and then it turned out the doctor was his father kind of thing it's like you it's like it, that is what you know storytellers do they withhold that 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 third act thing that makes everybody just go but you know what else when you transfer that to real life it becomes a you know situation but <laughs> you do know? you know who else does that who comedians that's the joke yeah and i think it's very interesting i'm gonna read like the opening of heartburn now if that's okay because I think it's very interesting. I, I'm not going to read it as well as Meryl Streep, who does the audiobook, but I will try. <laughs> you might. Come on, back yourself, Bella. <laughs> I am as good as Meryl Streep. <laughs> you heard it here. That is a sweeping statement for 2021. <laughs> the first day, I did not think it was funny. I didn't think it was funny the third day either, but I managed to make a little joke about it. The most unfair thing about this whole business, I said, is that I can't even date. Well, you had to be there, as they say, because when I put it down on paper, it doesn't sound funny. But what made it funny, trust me, is the word date, which when you say it out loud at the end of a sentence has a wonderful teenage quality. And since I'm not a teenager, okay, I'm 38, and since the reason I was hardly in a position to date on first learning that my second husband had taken a lover was that I was seven months pregnant, I got a laugh on it. Though for all I know, my group was only laughing because they were trying to cheer me up. What a beginning. That's so good. Oh man, that's fucking good. It's an opening that immediately tells you that this is a book about structure and that it's a book about power and when information gets revealed. Because date, and and it's not an accident. She doesn't start with the sentence, the most unfair thing about the whole business was that I couldn't even date. She says to you, I'm going to make a joke about this and here is why the joke is good. And it's good because I don't give you the word date until the end, which has this particular quality. Yeah. She sets her stall out with her in the very first lines of Heartburn. I am an artist who is making a thing and I am doing it to be funny, but also I am doing it in a very clever way that involves hiding and revealing and do you, am I making sense? And I think it's all the same no, you, thing. It's all yeah, the yeah, same yeah, thing about sense. revealing and twisting. And that what's, that's what makes good jokes. And that's what makes good stories. And I think it makes quite a difficult person. And it, it comes back to this, this phrase that she repeats. Basically, every time you see a Nora Ephron interview, she says this line. And it's kind of her manifesto for her entire life, which was, Everything is copy, which came from her mother. Her parents were both screenwriters. And um, whenever anything bad would happen to any of, of their daughters, the mom would say, well, everything is copy. Like, you can write about this. This can be, you know, there's another line in Heartburn where she says, you know, if, 
you know, if I slip on the banana peel and make a joke about it, it's my story. If you make a joke about it, it's your story. And it's it's the kind of the claiming of the story, which of course is extremely significant when you're talking about like, at this point in Nora Ephron's life, she was married to an extremely famous man. Like, I, I would say like, it's kind of hard to understand just how famous Carl Bernstein was because we don't really have a political scandal the same size as Watergate now. And the fact that he had written that book about it and, and everything. Um, the fact that when an extremely powerful man with a huge mouthpiece and a huge reputation in the public consensus cheats on you, (laughs) his sort of journalist wife who's kind of well thought of, but, you know, is definitely not the A A star player in that couple. Her name's not in the headlines. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it is about taking the story back, isn't it? It is about saying like, well, well, the guy who broke Watergate, guess what he did? And that's, of course, why it became such a runaway bestseller, because like the guy who wrote All the President's Men like had this tawdry affair with the daughter of the former British prime minister. And you now his wife is talking about it. And guess what, guys? It's funny. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, I guess the closest thing we would have is imagine if Carrie Johnson wrote a book about Boris Johnson's affairs and it was funny and also Boris Johnson was having an affair with like Grace Cuddington or something someone random (laughs) do you know what I mean? I was going to go with like one of the Biden granddaughters That would be mental. <laughs> yeah. But like, it's even like, I was thinking more like, it would be like if Jeremy Paxman's wife, whoever she is, I'm sure she's probably famous too, like wrote about him because it's like someone who's like beloved and respected and who's known for his great mind and like heroic commitment to journalism, you know? So yeah, Jeremy Paxman's wife, Jeremy Paxman has an affair and Jeremy with someone very also famous, Kate Middleton. <laughs> This is fun. I like this. <laughs> I mean, the thing is also, we don't really have political scandals in this way anymore. At least not in this country, because yeah. as far as I can see, they can do what they want. So it's different. They, yes, yes. We're, we're, we're currently recording this in the wake of Wine and Cheese Gate, so um, they can do what they want. Um, but the, while we're on the Carl Bernstein subject, there's something I wanted to bring up of kind of like an early sort of cave painting fragment of the Ephron that we would later come to know, which is there is a book by William Goldman, who's a very famous screenwriter called Adventures in the Screen Trade. And, you know, he's written all these very, very famous movies like um, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid and The Princess Bride. But there's a chapter in his memoir about how he had adapted All the President's Men, which was written by Carl Bernstein, into a script. It had gotten the green light, which obviously is a hard thing to do in Hollywood. It was going to be made. And then at the last minute, he kind of walks into the producer's living room and he sees Carl Bernstein and Nora Ephron, his at the time girlfriend, who must have been, you know, 30. Um, And they say, the producer says, hey, um, we love the script, but now Carl and Nora are going to take a crack at it. And the way William Goldman writes about it, he's like, what the like the guy who wrote the book and his fucking girlfriend who no one's ever heard of is gonna take my script that I've just written and adapted from it and he's gonna rewrite it again. 
And like, he's so furious about this. And it's very like, in all my years of screenwriting, I've never been insulted in this way. And then like a few pages later, it's like, oh, years later, I went and talked to the produ- that producer. And he said, of all the greatest fuck ups of his career, the worst one was handing over my script to the writer and his fucking girlfriend. And it's so funny because it's like this cave painting of Nora's ambition written on the wall that wouldn't kind of come to fruition until years later. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I I kind of admire it, but I'm also like, don't go do your boyfriend's... Don't, don't do it. That's tacky to climb up on your boyfriend's coat. That's not what I mean. That's not a phrase. <laughs> Kind of a phrase, climb up on your boyfriend's coach. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> but like, I think this is actually something we should think about with Nora Ephron as well, is her ability to make very famous and cool people love her. Yeah. Which this is the I think thing. Has, I think it has a ton to do with being rich. Like, remember mm-hmm. that article she wrote for the New Yorker about how getting 30 grand was uh was it 30 grand? It was it was this essay that she'd written in I Remember Nothing about um, inheriting off an old uncle and thinking it was going to be half a million or a million or something and then it, it dwindling over the days and then it's only 30 grand and she's like, what the fuck? Only 30 grand. <laughs> but the thing is, yeah, and she had this incredible apartment and I know she calls it a steal in a lot of her writing, but it wasn't that much of a steal to have this huge palatial apartment in Manhattan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when she's talking about the start of Heartburn, when she's talking about how they had things and she's like, we never had any money. And it's like, and she's just listed all the objects they have. And she's got that diamond ring and she's got so much money. And there's so much kind of comfortable wealth, which does make famous people think you're cool. It does. It's just, yeah. And it's also this thing of, and you, and you get this all the time with when people remembering her of like, you know, she was, when she was like working at Newsweek in 1962, you know, she's one of the first female journalists to get a byline there. And it was, you know, very important for feminism. But like this thing of, she would just like, she would could like walk up to like Jackie O at a dinner, at, a, at like a random party and be like, come to dinner. And they would. It's like, it is that fantasy. It's amazing. Because the thing is, money explains some of it. And having famous parents, I think, explains quite a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Kind of being brought up in that world where, you know, fam- you know famous people and your dad's kind of a big deal in Hollywood and your mum, even though she's an alcoholic, is also kind of a big deal. But I mm. think a lot of it just must be personal charm. I never met Nora Ephron, but everyone who did was like, that's that's the best person I've ever met. And it's this thing of... here. Here's the thing. This is what where Nora Ephron gets complicated for me, which is the more you look into her biography the more you th- you're like, oh, that's what it takes. First of all, you have to have insane confidence. Second of all, you have to be insanely well-connected from birth. Third of all, you have to be incredibly charming. And then like, fourth of all, just talent, you know? And yeah. I'm like, oh, that, that's what it takes to be Nora Ephron. That's what it takes to create three really well-loved romantic comedies one great novel and a bunch of essays that are quoted quite a lot. If we like boil it down to like what that legacy is. And it makes me so angry because I think lots of people could write. I think, I think all those movies are fantastic and I love them, but I also think that lots of people 
are capable of writing them. Do you know what I mean? I think I've met people who could write a movie at least as good as, as you know, you've got male, but they don't get made because for female excellence to actually happen, for female achievement to have to happen, so much other stuff has to go right and has to be in your favor. And like Nora is like this sort of, the she's both the architect of her own fate, but she was also the benefactress of so much luck. And it makes me depressed for female creativity because you have to have so much in your arsenal to get anywhere. Do you you feel that way? I do. And I think I feel it particularly when I think about Delia Efron. Yeah. Who's starting from the exact same point and actually is writing movies with her. A lot of the things that we love about Nora Efron, Delia is writing. There's this bit in that, uh, the Delia Efron, but we keep talking about where, I'm just trying to find the exact quote where she talks about how after Nora died... I'm going to read it, actually. Mm -hmm. At Nora's memorial service, Martin Short quoted Nora, Hazelnuts are what's wrong with Europe. It got a big laugh. It was my line. Tom Hanks quoted this dialogue about falling in love from Sleepless in Seattle. It was like coming home, but not to any home I'd ever known. Also mine. From my wedding. I'd popped it into the script. Some weeks later, Frank Rich in New York magazine quoted another line of Nora's. Never marry a man you wouldn't want to be divorced from. That's mine, I said to my husband. I looked in one of her collections. There it was. I tried to recall if she asked permission to use it. I don't remember it. I've probably used hers. For all I know, I'm going to do it in the next paragraph. And there's a bit later on where she's talking about how she didn't get a credit on Sleepless, even though she really wanted a writing credit on Sleepless. And they're coming from the exact same place. But Nora is, for whatever reason, maybe because she's the older sister, maybe she was just a bit more charming, I don't know, is getting credits that Delia is not, even though they're both fighting for the same thing. Oh, it's that that eternal, most satisfying and fascinating subject in the whole world to me, which is sisters. That's what I love about... So I just found this Delia Efron book, which is why I'm quoting it all the time, because I just Mm -hmm. finished it, as one does when you've just finished a book you really liked. And I'm... Where is the great Efron Sisters movie? Because the... Well, well, because Hanging On, Hanging Up. Hanging Up, yeah. Hanging Up. Hanging Up, which is very much about that, their sister relationship. It is, but... I mean, Delia Efron says it couldn't be directed by Nora because they really, really tried because Nora needed it to be about her, basically, is the gist. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. The novel Hanging Up is very much a satirisation of what it's like to have a very famous and self-involved older sister. (laughs) I know, but you'd think that they'd make... I wish they'd made a perfect sister novel, but maybe they couldn't do that. I wish they'd made a perfect sister movie, but maybe you can't make a sister movie with your sister. It's interesting... Delia talks about how they were unbelievably close, but not close to tell each other secrets. And I read a lot about sister relationships where it's like, we're best friends or we're enemies, but my sisters are not my best friends. They are like part of me, but they are not my friends necessarily. They're not people I tell my secrets to in that way because it's a different relationship. I don't know. I very rarely see that kind of very true writing about sisters. And I feel strongly that it's there in everything, everything I've read about about Nora by Delia. 
it's so good in that essay as well because she says something like we were comfortable with each other but we were not cozy with one another like this idea of like walking straight into your sister's house and looking straight in the fridge and eating all her food and 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 squabbling but like not really because yeah you're right there is this version of sisterhood that you do see in films where it's like very petty like everyone's like like stroking and touching each other and you and I always talk about uh the film Practical Magic which is (laughs) nominally supposed to be about two sisters but they are absolutely two lesbians (laughs) they just have to tell everyone they're sisters because it's the past But it's, it's weird, and it's weird because I was watching that um, show, which I really loved, This Way Up as well, which is also about two sisters played by Sharon Horgan and Ashling B. And it just, it feels like a lesbian relationship that they're just calling sisterhood. I feel like it's a really, really hard dynamic to get of somebody who you are comfortable with, but there is this sort of like slight sharpness that means that coziness evades you both, you know? And that's something that comes up in that Delia Efron essay that is so fantastic yeah I don't I um yeah I can't imagine feeling I have three sisters I like Nora I'm the eldest of four girls and I imagine that I imagine if my sisters are listening which they probably will do because they're really nice like that they always listen to the things I do um I imagine we all have similar prickly interesting feelings about each other which doesn't diminish from loving each other in a very profound and like hard to talk about way. Yeah. And you know what? I've been trying to write a book about my sisters for, well, I mean, specifically for three years, but really every project I ever make is kind of run up at trying to do that project about writing about sisterhood. And it's really difficult. It's really difficult because you're very aware in everything you're writing that you're not that you're going to cross a line somewhere yeah and i think yeah. this is something very interesting about nora and particularly about heartburn is to what extent is she crossing lines what extent is she telling the truth what extent is she making stuff up there's a line in the delia thing where our lives were in some ways entirely separate and unknown to each other in other ways like vines twisted together invading her privacy is not something i want to do Where that line is, is subjective. Perhaps to you, I have already crossed it or will cross it. But to me, I have not and will not. I find that very moving because I, this conversation is getting very personal to to me. I'm talking a lot about myself and my work and my sisters, but I think that's what Nora Ephron does, isn't it? She gives you a kind of shortcut into Mm. the kind of insides of your own mind and your own heart. I feel people often say to me, oh, you're, your writing's very raw, you share so much. And I feel like I'm being very careful not to share too much. I feel like that I'm always in this balancing act of how to tell the truth about people without telling their truth for them, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I find Nora a very interesting person to think about in terms of that, you know? Yeah, and you know what I always think about, particularly vis-a-vis heartburn, which is, um, you know, it is this sort of fantasy that all 
wronged women have, right? It's so much about Nora and why she's famous is because she does exist as a kind of fantasy for women, not just her power, but the things she was able to do, like take that kind of revenge on her ex-husband, which is so, just so incredible for anyone who's ever been wronged in that way. But the entire time I, I read it, every, every time I reread it, I just think, because now I know how long it takes for a book to come out, even if you write it in, you know, 12 weeks, it's still going to take at least two years to come out. And to go through that entire publishing process while you're going through a divorce and you have two young sons and being like, this is the, this is the, the record I'm committing. Do you know what I mean? I, I think she had every right to do what she did. And she says herself in the, in the kind of new forward she did for the Virago Modern Classic. She's like, oh, well, my husband cheated on me, but apparently I'm the one who's the villain because I wrote about it. Like, of course I was going to write about it. I've always been a writer. And I, I celebrate that and I love that. But like, I don't know. The, like, I, I just, every, I'm not a child of divorce, but every child of divorce I know has this thing of like, oh, my mother, even though it must have been really hard for her, was very careful about how she spoke about our father because mm-hmm. ultimately our relationship was this separate thing and she didn't want to muddy that water. And then you put that, you put this explosive device of like, yeah, I'm writing this thing about your, your scumbag dad, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, and I'm going to, I'm going to like, yeah, like spend two years, like be, going to various meetings about this thing that I know will be a big deal because he is famous and these things that should be private, but I'm making public. Um, but why? Yeah, I, I think about that a lot. Do you? I do. I, then I think... It's interesting in that when you were just talking now, you said some things that should be private, but I've made them public. And I think it's Mm -hmm. interesting, this sense of should be private. I have written a a lot about very personal things and some of it I regret and some of it I don't. And it's not necessarily what you'd think. The things I regret writing about are not necessarily the most personal. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. My sense of should, what should be private, what shouldn't be private, is maybe skewed because I do ultimately believe everything is copy. And I think that maybe if you're kind of born with this skewed sense of everything is copy, then your sense of what should be private is different. Your sense of should is different. But 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 even then, though, like in your own work, you make efforts to animate, as we all do, you know, even if we're taking inspiration, you know, obviously I write fiction, but, you know, yeah. it, things obviously make their way in there. You, you know, I'll often have a draft where the person who inspired it is seems to me quite clearly that person <laughs> and our friend, our, our friends would recognize it. And then I go tweaking and then I go like I change some things and then. In the second draft, there those tweaks have you know sunk into the character, and now they've become a real character. You know, but then I don't suppose we'll ever know to what extent Nora did that. She says she didn't. You know, she makes this joke about how shortly after I discovered my second marriage, in fact, ended exactly the way the one in Heartburn does. Shortly after I discovered that my husband was having an affair with an unbelievably tall person. In the book, I thinly disguised myself by making myself considerably more composed than I was at the time, and I thinly disguised my ex-husband by giving him a beard that belonged to one of our friends. The unbelievably tall person he had the affair with remained unbelievably tall. It's my experience as a novelist that some things lose everything if they're disguised, even thinly, and that therefore it's best just to leave them alone. 
which is a very funny phrase. Very funny that paragraph. Is, but, that is very funny. But we don't know. We don't know to what extent that she is telling the truth as it happened. And we will never know. And you can never know that with anything, mm. particularly a memoir. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a bit pathological about saying, not pathological, I can't remember what I mean, fanatical, about saying all the time, memoir is fiction. Memoir is fiction and fiction is memoir. They're the same. You can't mm-hmm. pull them apart. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. Okay, this is another thing that I love about Nora Ephron's prose writing, though, and her essays, is the, like, it is the flat-out honesty and the honesty about herself. Like, I do think she was probably, like, a bit of an egomaniac, but she's also honest about it. Like, yeah. there's this re- this brilliant essay in I Remember Nothing about her friendship with the playwright Lillian Hellman. And she talks about the two of them having this, like, grand romance and uh, how it was like, oh, you know, Nora was a young reporter who was interviewing her for um, New York Magazine. And, and she sort of started stalking Lillian and sending lovely letters and being like, oh, basically, take me up, make me your protege. And then as Nora's career started to skyrocket and Lillian sort of became less relevant, she talks about the discomfort that Nora felt at having to talk to her. And then she has this great, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but this this bit where she's like, at first, you know, Lillian was unsupportive of my divorce and I told her I could never be, I told myself I could never be friends with someone who would be unsupportive of my divorce. And then she tried to sue a journalist and I said, I couldn't be friends with somebody who didn't respect the Fifth Amendment. And she goes through all these things and then she's like, but really the the real reason is that I was I was sick of her and I'm sorry and I was callous and it was wrong. Do you know what I mean? It's like this really Laura. flat out honest being like, wow, I was not kind to someone who was kind to me and I, I iced them out and I feel bad about it. And she did the same thing with so many topics that she did that about aging. She refused to be home, like, like funny and comforting and homely about aging. She's like, I hate this. I hate this. And she talks about having all these movie flops and about how she hate how like even when those flops teach you something and even when years later they're picked up as being like overlooked classics it doesn't remove how deeply scarring it is for everyone to see that you failed and it's that honesty that I think I appreciate the most about her I think that's very true I'm very moved and conflicted about again I think it's something people don't do so much anymore I think maybe it's maybe it was hard then maybe it was just as hard to do do it when she did it to say yeah I got it wrong yeah yeah because people don't do it without giving context which 
context always means an excuse. Do you know what I mean? Context and also a sense of wanting something from it. Do you know yeah. what I mean? People apologise, right? Like, you know when it came out that Chrissy Teigen had been bullying, had bullied someone on Twitter <laughs> ages ago? Oh my God, yes, I do remember that. It was like <laughs> 10 years ago, she sent some person a tweet saying they should die. And it's like, yeah. I'm going to come into this. I really like Chrissy Teigen. I think her books are really nice. I think her family seems really cute. Um mm-hmm. But she's not apologising for nothing, is she? She's not apologising because she wants her conscience cleared for saying... <laughs> yeah. It's not because she suddenly remembered and felt bad that she'd done this bad thing. She has to apologise and it, she has to do a formal apology in the way of being like, I took some time off to reflect and uh, I was a bully and now i am gone away <laughs> for six months and now it's over and now I'm back to being who I was. And that's how all celebrity apologies happen because... They mm. need to go back to being who they were. And I think what moves me and I think is different about that Nora Ephron apology is just like, no one cares if you were mean to a playwright. No one. Yeah, you, you, you could have just as easily not told us this, you know? Exactly. Rather than being like, I have uh, done some soul searching and <laughs> I've decided that the thing I'm being... It's coming public- for all of us. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, look, we're all going to have to apologise for something because life is long and we're... Idiots. Everyone's an idiot. Life is long. <laughs> We're idiots. Life is long and people are, d- people are stupid. And it is impossible to think that you're going to get through your entire life without upsetting somebody in a way that is your fault. In a way, I kind of wish that we were just like, yeah, let's all learn to get good at apologising. Instead of where we are at the moment, kind of culturally. Here's a big sweeping statement. Call me Nora. Um, I think... Oh, this feels terrifying. I'm going to try and do it as an experiment for this podcast. Okay. Okay. But the other thing is, you've got to formulate a pithy sentence, which I can't do on the fly. Do you think Nora wrote hers down first, or do you think she just had a really pithy brain? I think brain. Pithy brain. Pithy brain, definitely. (sighs) But anyway, I'm going to make my sweeping statement, even if it's not very well expressed. It's not very sweeping if you give it this much of a (laughs) run-up. All right. Cut it out. You're the person in charge of making it. Get rid of all the preamble if you want. No, don't, because then people might think that I'm really doing this. I'm not Nora. I'll never be Nora. My sweeping statement is, the problem at the moment is we expect people to be perfect their whole lives rather than saying, every single person is going to fuck up all the time. You're fucking up right now. You're going to fuck up today. You're going to fuck up tomorrow. Uh, someone might notice, someone might not. Let's all just get good at apologising. Let's, let's get good at making and accepting apologies. That's my sweeping statement. My sweeping statement is, stop expecting people to be good. Start saying sorry. Yes, I do agree. I do agree. It's a good sweeping statement. And I I back it. I back it 100%. (laughs) Um, Because I do think that, so here's the apologies that we're um, used to hearing are the the ones that you exactly just pointed out, right? The, the, um, uh, back when, back during when these comments were made, I was unhappy and here are all the <laughs> here are all the things that happened that led to my unhappiness and actually my father had died earlier that year and I was coping badly anyway uh, I I said these horrible things to this woman and I told her to go kill herself um bye I'll be I'll be going for six months now <laughs> and here and here is the Lillian the Lillian Hellman um uh, apology 
I told myself I could never have... Yeah, she has that, the whole thing. I told myself I could never have got along with the friendship because I could never respect someone who had turned against the First Amendment. I actually did. I actually told myself that. <laughs> but the truth is that any excuse will do when this sort of romance comes to an end. The details are just details and the story is always the same. The younger woman idolizes the older woman. She stalks her. The older woman takes her up. The younger woman finds out the older woman is only human and the story ends. If the younger woman is a writer, she eventually writes something about the older woman. And then years pass. And then she herself gets older. And there are moments when she would like to apologize, at least for the way it ended. And this may be one of them. Like, the fucking, the, the brutalness of that, the self-brutality of that, and the honesty, I find, sh- like, shivering. Deeply moving. It's a- Learn to apologize. Learn to accept your faults and say, and say it in a way that, Places it in a context. Let's park ourselves in the movies because we've been talking for a while and we haven't really spoken in detail about them. Because I think we have the same favourite Nora Ephron movie. Or maybe we don't, but mine is You've Got Mail. Mine is You've Got Mail. I feel very, very... (laughs) I like that you definitely knew that because... <laughs> but I actually, I actually, uh, the last minute I was like, oh, maybe she, maybe when Harry met Sally. No, because I, I, no. I remember I, when I showed you, you've got mail, and it was a very transformative experience for both of us. Because I'd always loved the movie, but then I think something about the mood we were in when we watched it together, we were like, oh, people have been misunderstanding this film ever since it came out, and I'd like you to talk to us about that. I would say you've got mail is my Titanic, in that you know how people spend a lot of time shouting, they could both have got on the door. <laughs> Yeah, and it's so annoying. Yes, we talked about this in our episode with Gina Matthewson. I urge everyone to listen to it. (laughs) But it's the same thing. I feel about the bookshop in You've Got Mail, the way people feel about the door in Titanic, in that whenever anyone brings up You've Got Mail, I want to shout, she hated running the bookshop. She doesn't try. She doesn't try to save the bookshop. Yes. So the the plot of You've Got Mail, if in case anyone has forgotten, it's that... She, uh, Meg Ryan, runs a very beautiful, the most darling little independent children's bookshop you ever did see. And her mother used to own it. And which which at the beginning sort of feels like a reference to the fact that it is a kind of um, uh, a remake of a, a classic movie called Shop Around the Corner. And, uh, you know, everybody loves it there. And she has her regulars and she has her staff. And, you know, it's she nobody knows children's books as much as the character. I think her name is Kathleen. Um, Kathleen Kelly. Yes. I think. Maybe. Um, and she has this wonderful boyfriend in Greg Kinnear, and they're both these blonde Labrador puppy people. And uh, he's like a, sort of a, a, a columnist, and he's somebody who's like always espousing sort of traditional values, and he hates technology. And they're both like New Yorker smug people. And the, what happens then is that she falls in love with Tom Hanks in a chat room. He's the owner of like a Barnes and Noble style chain of books called Fox Books. And um, he's trying to destroy her financially <laughs> while falling in love with her online. It is a psycho plot to have the male lead destroy the life of the woman he loves. It's mental. And I think lots of people who see it think find it very dark and unsettling. But also the thing that goes throughout this movie from the beginning is like Kathleen say- literally saying out loud to every person in her life, do you ever feel like you're just doing something because people expect you to or because people want you to? And this thing of like, she loved her mother, she inherited the shop, her mother loved the shop and she's good at running it. So let's just do this forever. 
But if the more you watch that movie, the more you see there is like a deep sadness at the heart of that character that she feels very trapped inside this perfect little gilded cage of a bookshop. She's trapped by her mother's ghost. She feels that yeah. she has to keep running. The- this is, you know, I know that lots of people have different interpretations if you've got mail, but this is mine. She's trapped in that bookshop. She can't sell the bookshop. You can't give up your mother's dream. Your mother's dream, which was like, you spent your childhood in the bookshop and now you'll run the bookshop. It's like a beautiful thing. Oh, my mother ran the bookshop. Someday my daughter will run the bookshop. That makes everybody happy, except for her, because she wants to write children's books. She wants to be in the children's book world, which is actually a quite nice place to be as someone who writes children's books. I mean, apparently. Yeah. Apparently it's got a dark side, but I've never seen it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's this thing, it reminds me of... um, I always think about it, the last, one of the last scenes in the original Sex and the City series, which is when Carrie's moving to Paris and Miranda is kind of kind of needling her saying, you can't move to Paris, you can't do this. And obviously we all know that she shouldn't move to Paris because of what happens. But there's this part where Carrie screams at her. She says, I can't stay here and live in New York and be single for you. And it's this thing of like, People have having a cozy or set idea of a person in their head and it being, even if that thing is positive and that cliche is positive, it being ultimately very suffocating. I'm okay. I'm crying. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's where we're at spiritually recording this podcast. (laughs) I think talking about you've got mail. I think also we watched it, uh, after John, for people who don't know, John was uh, my late partner and Caroline's dear, dear friend. Um, he had a brain injury and I was kind of trying to keep this, trying to keep our house together, trying to keep our lives together, basically being like, ah, he will come back, even though it was kind of obvious to all of us that you know, we'd crossed a, we'd crossed the Rubicon. And I was desperately trying to keep this image alive, this world alive where our relationship was perfect and unchanged and our lives would go on and being unchanged. And I find, found watching You've Got Mail very important because she's like, this was a really important time in my life, running the bookshop, being a child when my mother was running the bookshop. And now I can't do it anymore. Something has intervened, in her case, Fox Books, in my case, a brain injury. And the time is over. And I find that scene, there's this scene where the bookshop is all packed up all the boxes, all the mm. books are in boxes and everything's empty. And for a moment, you can see her and her mother dancing. Oh. <laughs> and. Oh, no. <laughs> are you crying? Yeah. We're all crying. We're on Zoom and we don't have our cameras on because of the internet. So we can't gaze into each other's eyes. <laughs> yeah. And I. Right, I'm going to bring in Marie Kondo here because I... I, Okay, (laughs) unexpected. Unexpected twist. (laughs) But in her Netflix series, and I assume in her books as well, which I have not read, she talks about saying thank you to things when you're done with them before you throw them away. And I would say Mm -hmm. it's been transformative for me as a person with sort of slight hoarding tendencies to be like, thank you, Boots. You have carried me a long way, but also now the cobbler can't mend you because you are too broken. Thank you, goodbye. Mm. Rather than... I love you, Boots. You must stay here forever because you've done such good service for me. And I can't throw you out because that would be a betrayal of the time I spent wearing these boots. I've just said throw away some boots, can you tell? 
And, yes. <laughs> and I would say as someone who's known you for a long, long time, your hoarding ability, your hoarding, you know, Tendency. Uh, instincts, ha- tendencies, yes, have really um, improved in leaps and bounds. <laughs> like, you are, I would not even describe you as a hoarder anymore. No, I am here in my room, which has almost nothing in it. There's quite a lot more things in the sitting room, obviously, but not that many more. Not, not sort of bits of stone. Yeah. And sort of yeah, like precious. <laughs> literally, feathers. couldn't you couldn't go on a walk with you without you like, like picking up you know just a bit of <laughs> bit of old shit and being like, this is going in my box marked October, <laughs> and you're like, this is very sweet, <laughs> but what is it doing to the inside of your home? <laughs> well, you remember, you remember mine and John's flat. The answer is, I remember. Stuff. I had to pack it up with you, and I very much resented those adorable tendencies then. <laughs> I think that's the thing with the what I refer to as the golden trio, which is when Harry met Sally, Sleepless, and you've got Mail. Golden because they're great, and golden because of Meg Ryan's hair. Oh, um, Meg Ryan. Oh, her beautiful hair. Um, it is this thing of like, and there's something that Nora said about rom-coms, which she says her her distinction of a rom-com was not that they were romances, it was, and this is a, this is a, a quote that's described to her, but um, by a friend of hers. She said that they were commenting on their time in an intelligent way, but with the intention for delight. The intention for delight. I, oh my god, yeah. I love it! I love it. <laughs> it's so it's so good because it's like so much of those that, that trio. It's like like obviously sleeps in Seattle. Famously, the, they don't meet until the very very end. You've got male. They don't spend much time on screen together except when they're arguing. When Harry met Sally, they don't get together to the very end. We see very little of like love as love, like romance and people wooing each other. That really doesn't happen because I don't think Nora really found that stuff interesting. What she found interesting was the stuff that happens around love, around connection. It's the it's the friends finagling things to get people together. It's the like. It's intimacy that she cared about, not necessarily yes, romance. Yes, yes. I think that's it, isn't it? And that's why all the... We've talked before, I think, Cara, about the idea of Nora Ephron's real talent being writing the f- sentence. Not not writing the sentence, literally, but constantly writing the idea. Someone can be really... Someone can be right, but not right for you. There can be this nothing the- wrong with someone and they can be still wrong for you. And I think maybe if you believe that there are lots and lots of different forms of important intimacy in your life, then you are more inclined to, to sort of, to sort of see, to see people you don't want to sleep with, not as, oh, there must've been something wrong with him because we didn't fall in love or we weren't in love, in love enough. You're more inclined to be like, ah, a person, another intimacy that was interesting, but ultimately was not the thing, the, that thing. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying because it comes up in all three of those movies. In You've Got Mail, Meg Ryan has this, this relationship with Greg Kinnear and it's my favourite breakup scene in all of cinema because it's this thing where they like, I'm not in love with you. And he's like, I'm not in love with you either. And they're just like so happy to be like, oh, we should be in love, but we're not. And then in Sleepless, we have this Tom Hanks character. He has this like perfectly fine girlfriend who has like a bit of an annoying laugh. Um, but like, it's not as if the film is painting her as this terrible person. It's just like something's not right and everybody knows it. And it's the same in When Harry Met Sally. Like both characters have a bunch of partners throughout the movie, but and nobody is ever hung out to dry, which is a thing that rom-com writers often do. It's such a cliche now at this point 
of like, oh, there's the evil bad character who's you know resentful and jealous and not good for the lead. And if only the lead could see that Meg Ryan is the person. It doesn't do that. It doesn't make someone shit so Meg Ryan can be better or Tom Hanks could be better. It's this acknowledgement of like, yeah, something can be seem like it's really perfect and still be fundamentally wrong. Yes, and also it doesn't make them too perfect either because I think most rom-coms, particularly written romances, um, I never know what to call them. Like, if we're not saying chiclet anymore, that's the whole point. But sentimental garbage, generally, is the sort of genre, not the podcast, Mm. has a real thing of making (laughs) the lead man's girlfriend at the start annoyingly perfect. Um, yeah. I've told you about this thing before, but sometimes if I'm feeling quite uh, miserable about myself, I uh, descri- describe myself in my own head as if I was describing the hero's girlfriend in a <laughs> in a in a chocolate novel. It's so good. I'm, it's like a soft cashmere scarf, tumbling curls, and I was like, wow, oh, now I feel better. I really recommend it. If you're having a low day, just like take a little walk, put on like some very soft clothes, and then describe how soft your clothes and hair are. Yeah, put yourself in the mindset of a jealous woman looking at you. Exactly, like a jealous, she's so, you're so clumsy. That she's like, this other woman describing you, she's so clumsy, she's ditzy. Yeah. And she's looking, and this is- she's spilling her, she's spilling her coffee, she's eating a Marmite Twiglets. She's looking at you thinking, that soft, clean woman. <laughs> anyway, the point is, it's a great trick. Nora doesn't do that. Nora's the, like, Let's go to the sleepless in Seattle because I know we just both saw it because we saw it together before that was uh, unwise. And mm-hmm. the girlfriend, Tom Hanks's girlfriend in sleepless in Seattle, is a perfectly nice woman who's making an effort. Yeah, yeah, she likes baseball and everything. She likes and baseball. She's, like... she's got kind of an annoying laugh, but she's trying hard to be kind. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, they seem to have an okay time together, which is what a lot of people get in relationships—an okay time. That and and then I think what. Then the interesting thing is the then the transcendent moment that happens in the last ten minutes of those movies, which is the like the 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 magical stardusty ineffable thing, you know the the Harry realizing that Sally was the one all along, and the Tom Hanks showing up at the end of You Got Mail, and and her being like just weeping and saying, "I hoped it would be you." <laughs> And the thing, this man who has destroyed her life. He's given her a life. He's, there we go. He's freed her from her horrible prison of tending to her, this bookshop with her mother's ghost. It was a beautiful prison and now it's dead. And that's fine. I really hope that people, after listening to this podcast, rewatch that movie with the lens of she hates that fucking bookshop secretly. She doesn't even know she hates it. She thinks she loves it. But she needs to, her life to be more than running... An independent bookshop. Now, I have some feelings about independent bookshops, which is that I tend to get intimidated in them and find them stressful because they're quite small and people always buy more intellectual books than I do. And I love a big clean... Well, I love a big clean Waterstones. I love a big clean Foils. I think I would love Fox Books. I think Fox Books (laughs) seems nice. There's loads of space for browsing. And I bet no one's going to be slightly sniffy about the books you buy which I do worry about in independent bookshops and I know loads of independent booksellers are gonna listen to this and be like we would never be snooty some people are look both both need to exist both need to exist but I I feel like sometimes I worry that independent bookshops are for people who read books in translation serious ones without any jokes 
<laughs> or worse, <laughs> ones that are described as funny, but you don't know where that any of the jokes are. <laughs> Very, oh my God, that's a real, that's a real, that's the real pandemic in publishing. <laughs> Books that are described as being darkly funny and they're just dark and they're not funny. Her independent bookshop has become a millstone around her neck. She needs to get out of there and she's never going to do it without a different story to jump to. It's not as simple as being like, well, why doesn't she just get a job and shut the bookshop? She's not going to do that. That would be a betrayal of her mother and of herself. She needs there to be a different story where it's like the bookshop was closed. Because in that movie, there are protests to save the bookshop. And she's like, yeah. Thanks for coming, guys. Uh, Seems like we failed. Uh, let's go home. It's the, do you, the scene that always gets me is when in the, it's like the last weekend they're basically having a fire sale and all her customers are coming up to her being like, oh, it's so sad. And she's, and she's like, yeah, I know. It's pretty sad. All right. Okay. Here's your book. Bye. <laughs> like, do you remember that bit in Peep Show where, um, I've seen a lot of Peep Show, but Mark's company closes and they all are like, we're going to go on strike to get our money back. And then they offer him a deal. And and then the company secretly offer Mark a deal. And he just goes on stage at this, we're going to wait and we're going to strike and we're going to get our money back. And he says, and he's meant to be giving a big inspirational speech. And he says, well, we've tried, we failed. Let's all go home. <laughs> and that is exactly... I love that episode so much. And it's also the episode where when um, when the company has shut and they're all in the car park, he just keeps walking around saying, well, chance would be a fine thing. Because <laughs> he can't think of anything else to say. And that's very Kathleen Kelly in this movie. Yes. But just, we've I'm- tried, we've failed, let's all go home. And that's Kathleen Kelly talking to everyone who's like, we'll get a protest. And it's like, please don't. What it did for me watching You've Got Mail. There comes a point where trying, you don't have to always try to sort of keep things as they are. Sometimes you just have to let go. And that is the moral of You've Got Mail. And people don't realise that because they think it's about uh, kissing and uh, AOL. But actually, (laughs) the message of the movie... Kissing and AOL! The two things that people think You've Got Mail is about, (laughs) when actually You've Got Mail is about going, we've tried, (laughs) we've failed... Let's all go home yeah. and see what happens next. It, it also, it's about escaping the prison of not just the bookshop, but about being a certain type of person, of being like a person who reads The New Yorker and whose boyfriend is obsessed with typewriters and like, you know, shops exclusively at independent stores. And it's like, that's a, that's a lovely goal, but it's actually exhausting to strive towards every day. And you can see she's getting nothing out of it. Right? I think that's why I've said on this podcast, I don't like films and I don't like independent bookshops. Two things I actually like quite a lot. Because once you say, I don't like them, then you don't have to think about what it says about you. You don't have to be like, ah, yes, I shop only in places where they wrap my purchases in tissue paper before buying. And like, oh, the films I like are very clever and important. The films I like are not clever and important. I like silly movies where people kiss at the end. And I like bookshops where people kiss at the end (laughs) I also like I love an independent bookshop but I also love a bookshop where I don't feel like I owe the person behind the till anything you know like is the do you you ever have a thing where you're in in, you're in an independent bookshop and say you spy a book by somebody you know 
and you this is this is very one percent of us but um, but like i might see like oh look they have ella's book on the shelf and they have it in a lovely display i'm gonna take a picture and send it to her and that will make her happy and then i see that the tail person is looking at me and they think that i'm taking a picture to go buy on amazon later and I feel very, very bad. And then I overspend so they don't hate me. I would never feel that in a huge Waterstones because I don't <laughs> care about not giving Waterstones my money. <laughs> I just, I think there is a certain pressure on women. And I think particularly the kind of women who love Nora Ephron films, and maybe this is why they love Nora Ephron films, to be a certain kind of woman, to be in every aspect of their life, a thoughtful, conscious person who... Has do you remember those flowers that she has on the table and you've got mail who has like fresh flowers and a beautiful like little apartment and she's wearing mm. exquisite pajamas, and bec- oh the exquisite oversized men's pajamas and because it's relatable, you're like I could live like that. It's like an influence. It's like an Instagram influencer, right? You're like oh I could live like that, and I think I feel that pressure all the time to be like, am I being correct? Am I being my best Meg Ryan today? Am I being my know? best Meg Ryan today? Which is a great way to live. But it's also hard and it's the opposite of Nora Ephron herself. That's the weird dichotomy. Nora Ephron, who's going around saying things like, Martin Brando's gay and everyone knows it. (laughs) What do you think about that, suckers? (laughs) And And here's the thing I'm really interested in, which is the idea of Meg Ryan as being Nora Ephron's avatar. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, because... The, the the Meg Ryan characters in those three movies, they're all kind of the same character, which is not a criticism. I love, it's the same way that Jimmy Stewart is always playing a Jimmy Stewart character. It's this thing of like, it's always this slightly type A, kind of anal retentive, very clever woman who seems like she's um, bulletproof, but is actually very vulnerable and chooses very few people to show that vulnerability to, and is also prone to an obsessive complex. And that person feels like a romanticization of Nora's actual self. Do you know what I mean? Yes, totally. I totally And know. I find it so strange because it's this weird thing of like, it's like, you know, Meg Ryan has never, I mean, I'm sure lots of Meg Ryan fans will get on to me about this, but Meg Ryan has never really made a movie that didn't, like that people loved that didn't have Nora Ephron's hand in it. And Nora Ephron has never really made a movie that people love that didn't have Meg Ryan in it. That's really true. I was looking at Nora Ephron's Wikipedia page yesterday. And honestly, if you scroll down the list of movies she made, there's a lot of things in there where it's like, if you click on them, it's like critical failure, commercial failure, total flop, critical failure, 20% on Rotten Tomatoes. I actually watched one of these movies yesterday. Oh, yes. (laughs) Mixed Nuts, I believe it was called. Mixed Nuts, which is a Delia and Nora Ephron movie. Although obviously billed under Nora Ephron's name alone because she directed it. And it is, I would say, one of the worst films I've ever seen. There are amazing lines in it. But the whole film is baffling. It's, And I think the pre- premise is quite interesting, which is six misfits at a suicide who run a suicide hotline on Christmas Eve. But th- A great plot. But the whole thing is so batshit and so badly constructed and no one's kind of holding it together, even though even though there are a lot of great actors in it, and obviously it's a Nora movie, and you can feel all the lines, and the lines are funny. 
It just doesn't make sense. And I think this kind of made me think. Actually, Nora Ephron doesn't really write plots that make sense a lot of the time. The plot of Sleepless, Sleepless in Seattle. Nuts. Absolutely fucking nuts. What's that movie? What is that movie? Like, she hears a guy on the radio, so she stalks him and takes pictures of him and his young child, a widower, and then they kiss. <laughs> the end. Yep. But it's okay because it's magic and it's fate. Yeah. The plot of Harry Met Sally is pretty normal, but the construction of the movie is not, in that you've got all the random interviews. All the random interviews. And the fact that they, it's not its not as if they're friends for years, which I think is how it's often built. It's like they bump into each other a bit. They have an acquaintanceship for years. They're friends for two years and then they bang. Yeah. Again, it's quite an odd structure. Odd structure. And then what's the third one? You've got mail. Again, as we've said, he tries to run her out of business and he knows who she is all the time. Yeah. Which the power imbalance there is weird. Very weird. And she's, yeah, so she's really not somebody who, like, plot was a big thing, you know? Like, they, they don't move in classic three-arc, you know, three-act structures, you know? It really reminds me of um, the Barbara Trapedo novel, Brother of the More Famous Jack, which has... Oh, yes, which we did a wonderful episode on, one of my favourites. People should listen to it. It's very good. And, but that doesn't have a structure that makes sense, really. It has a structure that falls out like life. And I guess yeah. there's something very appealing to me in the idea of being like, look, I don't know, it just happened like that. This is something you and I talk about a lot, which is that there are some novels um, that just happen. Like, it's like, yeah, like it, the, the secret history is one I always think of. It's like, if I were an editor working on a desk and the secret history crossed it today, I would be like, okay, this is obviously a great novel, but, um, you know, it takes too long for him to meet the gang. You know, the, the Julian character isn't brought out enough. I would find all these things that were wrong with it and I would write back to Dantar a lovely editorial letter. But unfortunately, it would be moot because it just happened that way. Like, it's one of these things that all the flaws in it feel like the natural flaws of life. Life is not very story-shaped. You have to cut bits off and sh- sort of shove it around to make it story shaped. And I really admire the kind of commitment to being like, what, you think it should be story shaped? <laughs> like, yeah, I'm telling the yeah. truth here. Why does it need to fit in? There, it's, it's, it's really a, an unbelievable artfulness when like a storyteller can do that, when they can make a story that is fictional, that feels wonky in the way that life feels wonky and not wonky because they're doing their job badly you know it's a it's an unbelievable feat yes yes although i'm still amazed that sleepless in seattle is as widely loved as it is when it is such a mad premise it's such a mad premise and it's such a slow film like it's so slow there's no kissing no one breaks up and gets back together there's no yeah i had i've only recently seen it and i have to say it is odd it's odd to watch for the first time and be like, she, she takes pictures of him with his son while she's <laughs> hiding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She stalks him. She hires a detective. It's the point where she hires the detective that it gets a bit like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> but like, even though all these hijinks are happening, it's still a strangely slow film that is mostly just people talking to their friends about being lonely. And I have to say, even with a film like Mixed Nuts, which was very... <laughs> Your favourite film of all time? <laughs> There is a lot of conversations about being lonely and nobody in it's uncomplicated. There's a lot of very weird... There's a lot of very weird judgmental stuff and I kind of want to talk about this really briefly because I know we don't have a lot of time. 
nor are everyone's mm. judginess about people. In Mixed Nuts, there's a trans character who I would say, I would not recommend this film to, well, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone, but I specifically wouldn't recommend it to trans people because it's a very weird fucking vibe. And mm. it's like, the trans person might be the butt of the joke. It's kind of skims over it. And the same way in Heartburn, there's such a weird bit about Amelia the housekeeper where it's, again, very skimmed over and you're not completely sure what Nora Ephron is getting at. But there's something, she talks about her blackness and her fatness and the fact she's got moles in a way that is just like, oh, you don't really think Amelia's got feelings. You don't really think of this person as being a person like you're a person. And I feel that throughout a lot of Nora's work, there's a there's a judginess. There's a sense that people who aren't rich, rich New Yorkers maybe aren't proper people. I said this to you the other day where I said, I think that if Nora knew us, I think she'd like us fine. But if she wrote about us, she'd definitely include the words chubby about me and Irish about you, both of which are true and neither of which are bad. But they'd just be there in the descriptions in ways that you're like, okay, right. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I, yeah, it's it's so funny to think about, like, how would Nora Ephron describe me in an aside? Like, if she, if she was talking about a dinner party and I was, like, someone's girlfriend or friend who was just sitting there and she had, like, a little one-liner about me that just basically communicated without saying it that she didn't wasn't impressed. <laughs> like, yeah. And there was some girl there, some tall, loud Irish girl who said that she didn't like pickles or something. Or, yeah, obviously, I do like pickles. But yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like something like that is this kind of way of dismissing people's existence. And that thing with um, that character, Amelia, it's really weird because it places itself in this place of compassion of like, oh, I resented my father marrying Amelia, not because she was black, but because he was getting her to do for free what she had previously been doing for a job, which was looking after him because she was the housekeeper, uh, which is okay. And then there's like this thing where she says, oh, my sister said she was after his fortune because of her, you know, her habit of, um, I think it was spending too much money on wigs or something, which is a really fucking like yep. coded, racist fucking moment there and it's it's this thing of like I didn't say the racist thing it's my sister who's the one who's racist but we can all admit this is funny right and that's the discomfort exactly and I think there's a bit there's a bit in heartburn where she's kind of says something about an Asian guy on the subway and you're just a bit like do you need to do this like and I think some of that's because she's a product of her time and her upbringing But I do think there's a certain spikiness, a certain f- being able to find the th- find out people's quote unquote weaknesses in the ways that society thinks of them as weaknesses. Do you know what I mean? I think she would yeah, have an, yeah. there's a kind of total understanding of a worldview and how everybody in the world fits into that worldview. Yes. And yeah in that way of it reinforces all of these things. These kind of... Like, obviously, beauty standards is the top one because 
thinness is such a such a virtue to Nora. Yeah, she 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 talks about thinness a lot. She talks about her age a lot. She talks about like yeah. I mean, but I I I do like. Uh, a female writer who's honest about how perilous her beauty routine actually is. Yes. And I think she is funny about that stuff. And again, it's an honesty that we love from her. But you do also get the sense that as she's like talking about all these essays where she's talking about getting her hair done and and how she hates her neck and all this kind of stuff um, of like, okay, these are the self-hating things about yourself. But like, are is this also something that you apply to everybody around you? Yes. You and know? I think that she did. I have this cookbook from about the same time called the Career Girls Cookbook. Mm-hmm. And it has this section. It it starts off by explaining how to tell if you're fat. Okay. And her definition of fat, the woman who wrote this cookbook, which is supposed to be for the every girl, is pinch yourself all over your body and if your fingers don't slide off anywhere <laughs> oh my god then you know you need oh to go on a god. diet oh my god and it's anywhere yeah, anywhere oh my god like that is fucking hell like I'm and it's just like it couldn't be a more brutal thing because it's like inflict pain all over yourself check check yourself regularly to check that you can't pinch you can't <laughs> pinch yourself until your hands slide off and then it's like yeah. and this is quite a cheerful practical cookbook about looking after yourself yeah the cultural expectations around fatness in particular are such and obviously what uh, what kind of goes without saying i think and hope is we are talking about a cultural tolerance of racism which i hope and believe we are finally dragging out into the open Mm. Yes, that's a that's that's really well. I pushed. really hope we are, and, and that's what she's getting at with that Amelia thing, right? Yeah, she's kind of it's this tolerance of racism as being part of the status quo that she's not that interested in because she is part of the status quo, and I think that's the interesting thing about Nora is that she's kind of this countercultural, fi- not countercultural, but like she's she's kind of people think of her as like a cult, someone who's a bit subversive, someone who's a bit different, but she is reinforcing mm. the status quo in a lot of ways. I think it is interesting. We've not talked about her sort of Jewishness at all. And I think that's because yeah. there's a bit where Delius, and I, I kind of wanted to bring it up because I feel like when we're talking about these quick big questions, it is worth noticing. But there's a bit in Delia's book where she just says she was she thought of herself as barely, barely Jewish. She was almost a Gentile, except, of course, that she wasn't, I think is the exact line. I'm going to look it up now. But I... I find it very interesting. Yeah. She, yeah. Yeah, it, it is interesting, isn't it? Because like, you know, if we think of like, especially in, in America, there's this wonderful tradition of, you know, yeah, Jewish American comedians and um, and that sort of like, that quippiness is very part of that tradition, you know, which is so part of her writing. And then you look at the movies and there is a real absence of any kind of Judaism, right? Very it's like... <laughs> They're very Christmassy. You never, I can't even really think of any Jewish side characters. Like, obviously, Billy Crystal is Jewish, but like, you know, the character of Harry isn't particularly, I don't think. Um, it like, it never comes up, and it, which is weird. It's interesting, isn't it? For someone who is so keen on sort of being, making sure that you know that Amelia the housekeeper is black or whatever. Not whatever, yeah. she's not black or whatever. She is black, but 
there are many other characters who she kind of dismisses in a way of being like, ah, here's the one thing about them you need to know. But her mm-hmm. Jewishness, as far as I know, doesn't seem to really... It, it doesn't kind of, it doesn't center, it doesn't help, she doesn't center herself around that in the way that she centers others around their, I guess, points of marginalization. Does that make sense? I'm I'm, I'm trying to kind of yeah, feel my yeah, way through yeah, it because I'm very aware that neither of us are Jewish and we're kind of talking about this incredibly famous Jewish woman and I, and her kind of, I guess, racism and fat phobia and maybe not quite sexism but certainly upholding the patriarchy and I do think it's an interesting thing to raise if I don't really have anything to say about Nora Ephron's Jewishness because I don't remember reading anything about it from her except in kind of asides about like traditional Jewish food with i.e. like that joke about Kreplech that her therapist tells her Mm -hmm. and that's about it I think certainly the kind of mainstream stuff but I think it's interesting. Yeah. I think it's interesting. It I is. don't have an answer, but I felt like I would. Re- I felt like I would listen to this back and be like, "It's weird that we don't mention that." <laughs> That's so true. Yeah, and it, it is funny, isn't it? Because like you, obviously, there's there's no correct amount of way a, a person's cultural heritage or religious heritage can be in their work. It's weird. I told you about this the other day, but I got cited in this article recently as being an example of an Irish writer living in London who doesn't make enough of their Irishness. <laughs> I mean... Which I feel like I make a lot of it. <laughs> I I don't really... Look, I love, you very, I love you very much. And I'm sure you're shy and retiring about many things. But I would say, I've never known you be kind of coy about Irishness. I've never known you be like... My cultural heritage is a mystery. <laughs> I'm actually. It, it made me laugh so much. <laughs> it was so good. Like I just kept thinking of like, what are the ways in which I could be more Irish in my work and in my daily doings? <laughs> I mean, you write a lot for the Irish press. Your I do your first novel. Yeah, a lot. A lot of my characters are Irish. Some of them live there. Like, I would say, aside from your first novel. Everything else you've ever written has been a Irish? Yeah, has dealt with Ireland in some way. And so like your second, your I, second I, novel I, I guess what is entirely about what it is to, the relationship between Ireland and England and what it is to be Irish and to go back to Ireland and what that anyway. I, I guess what I'm trying to get with with citing this other than just uh throwing my weight around is um the <laughs> The sense that they're, they're, I I think what that writer was trying to get at, although honestly it is kind of a mystery to me, um, is that there are certain Irish topics that you're expected to hit. And that's something that I, I I actually do feel like I've kind of resisted a little bit where there's a certain kind of um, tradition you're supposed to be writing in, whether it's like, you know, the Irish tone of talking about, you know, Sort of smog and birds and <laughs> poverty. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah. The sort of like very cl- classic and serious and um, winsome and like this this kind of this tone and this approach that I don't really take. And maybe it's the same with, with Nora of like everything she does is informed by her Jewishness because of the fact of it. But she felt... She didn't engage with it in the way we classically expect those creators to. Is, is that, does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And I think 
that's why. But I think it makes it more difficult to... I suspect if we were two Jewish book people having this conversation about Jewishness in Nora Ephron's work, we'd have more to say. But I suspect there are things that neither you or I pick up on or certainly that I don't feel informed enough to speak about even if I kind of like think like oh that maybe that maybe that um that then we pick up on it in the same way that I think perhaps two Irish writers or experts in Irish literature could read your work and be like yeah that feels like a part of this tradition that feels like part of that tradition do you know what I mean yeah you do know what I mean. yeah smog and birds smog and birds um <laughs> uh, we should probably wrap up and as this is the Christmas special we should really talk about those little Christmassy moments that we do get in Nora's work, because I do think that in the, in, in the Golden Trio, there is this sense of like time passing. In She's very a fan of a, a good, like a year in review type of movie. You know what I mean? Like the way that When Harry Met Sally moves and the way that um, Sleepless moves. I can't remember if there's a Christmas scene of You've Got Mail, but the whole thing feels Christmassy because of the sort of twinkly lights of the bookshop. And like... yes. Twinkly lights I think one, always feel Christmassy. Twink, there's a twinkliness and there's a warmth that makes all of her movies feel very Christmas. Um, and like I, I like, I mean, it's that New Year's Eve scene. There's, I mean, there's two New Year's Eve scenes in When Harry Met Sally um, that make me cry because all New Year's Eve scenes make me cry because they have old Lang Syne in them. Um, and the first is when they're dancing on New Year's Eve and they, they kind of both realise this sort of physical connection between them and then they dispel it. And the second is when he shows up at that party, at the same party a year later, and he tells her he loves her. And that to me is, that is the essence of, of a seasonal moment, you know, in a film. Yeah, that's so nice. <laughs> so nice. And when they're shopping for trees. <laughs> Christmas. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think... I think Nora Ephron's a very Christmassy topic and I feel like I'm glad we've talked about her for the Christmas special. This has been a great one, I think. Now let's hope we recorded it in some way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, do you have any parting words on, on Nora? That I think that my question at the beginning of the episode was, I love her, but do I like her? And I think I do like her with the caveat that I know she's saying horrible things or like not even horrible, but pithy things about me behind my back. In that way, I love her, but I don't know if I trust her with my secrets. Yeah, and neither does her sister, so that I feel fair. very sistery about her, you know? Feel yeah. very sistery. Yeah. Okay, we should wrap it up, but um, you've got some books. You've got mail and some books. I have. People should buy my books because I simply love spending money to be that kind of exquisite woman who shops in tiny little bookshops and everything gets wrapped in tissue paper. Um... <laughs> So the first book that you should buy is called The Secret Detectives. It's for 8 to 12-year-olds, but I'm widely uh, informed that it is fun for people to read who are not 8, 9, 10, 11, or 12. Uh, it's a murder mystery. It's a murder mystery prequel to The Secret Garden, and it's set in a ship. It's kind of about racism, but also kind of not that much. Uh, you know, it's, it's not like a heavy yeah. book. Uh, the second book you should buy... It's called Set Me on Fire, and it's a collection of poetry. I didn't write the poetry, um, except for one poem that's about Caroline. Can you spot it? I oh. wrote it under a pen name. That's my book I wrote for Caroline. Uh, very cool. And it's, it's a very cool thing about my life that there is a book of poetry dedicated to me, and there's a poem in there about me. That's absolutely true. People often don't spot it, which is weird, because it's got your name in it. <laughs> um, and 
The third book you should buy is Midnight Chicken, which is a cookbook I wrote about trying to kill myself. And the fourth book is out in May. It's called Year of Miracles, Recipes About Love and Grief and Growing Things. And it's about, as I said earlier in the episode, falling in love and my boyfriend dying and getting a new life in which he is dead and I am not, which was a real shock to, you know, it was a real thing I had to figure out. But please pre-order it. It's out soon. Um, I think it's fantastic. I think it's the best one I've done. It is fantastic. I read it. And once again, I'm in it. Yay! But under a pseudonym, because this time I gave everybody fake names because I didn't want them to yell at me if I told their story wrong. Okay. Happy Christmas, everybody. This is going to be the last sentimental garbage of the year. And it probably will be a bit of a break until the next one. So everybody, keep safe. Keep safe, pals. Happy Christmas. Let's see what happens next, I guess. This has been Sentimental Garbage and I've been Caroline O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me about the podcast at sentimentalpod at gmail.com. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast. Thank you to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Day for the artwork, and Hannah Varro for the mixing. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.